few different passages today. I have to say I'm not completely sure what God wants me to talk about or how he wants me to do this. Um, I thought I had a sermon series lined up that was going to go for the next five weeks, and this morning God changed that. So we're starting from scratch. And so really I'm going to be talking about some things that, uh, I don't know, to me it's a little uncomfortable. To you it'll probably be fine, but um, I I feel like I'm out there in an area that uh, I'm not confident with. Um, it kind of starts, the song that, w- that we sang, um, as a deer panteth for the water. I heard a sermon from a pastor in Texas that uh, has a lot of deer on his property. And he said something in the sermon that, that I never thought of. You know, you read things, you hear things, you just don't really think about it. But he says, you know, one thing I've learned about deer is that a deer never pants unless it's exhausted, and we, we look at that passage in Scripture, and we look at it like, oh, it's so peaceful, it's so loving, it's so graceful. You know, God is so good whenever we're, we're, we're tired. You know, he, he, he uh, comes alongside us and loves on us, right? But the reason the deer pants is probably because it's been at a high-speed chase. It's been chased by some kind of a, an animal that wants to consume it, or, or it's being threatened by something else. But the, the imagery is that this deer is so stressed out at this point and so over itself and so just exhausted that it can't hardly function. And that's when it gets to the water and is panting because it needs relief drastically or it may die, you know, that kind of thing. And and I think there's an awful lot of us like that. I think that there are an awful lot of us who are panting through life and, and we just see it as normal. But we don't really have a way of measuring or understanding how exhausted you may be. What's chasing you? What is it that's keeping you up at nights? What's scaring the, the living crud out of you? What, what is it that is so overwhelming that you, you're just having problems functioning in this world? We, we just don't seem to think about stuff like that because we're so inwardly focused. You know, really, I mean, the scriptures say in the last days we're going to get worse about this, but we really don't care about people. This world does not care about each other. They care about themselves. People are lovers of themselves. Everything that we're asked to do for another person is this huge burden that's going to, like, destroy my life if I have to, like, get you a cup of water. You know, if I have to say thank you for a gift you gave me, it's like, really, do I have to? We are so inwardly focused and we are so selfish and it is so ugly in this world. So with that kind of stuff floating around, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, about Jesus' last days on earth and his disciples and the relationship he had with them. But the one that keeps standing out to me is Judas. I don't know why I have been so hyper-focused on Judas lately. The one who betrayed Jesus in his most vulnerable moments, when the time in his life where he was panting for, for God to step in and give him the strength that he needed, which God did, at that moment is when Jesus, Judas was like the biggest thorn in the flesh to him. And how could a person that spent three years learning at the feet of Jesus, hearing the messages about love, seeing the power of his miracles, seeing all of this incredible stuff that he did, how could Judas pull the trigger and betray this one who he knew, and he just knew he was the Savior? 
So I want to share some verses with you. In Matthew 10, I want to look at this. Um, it starts in verse 4, or verse 1. And it says that Jesus, he, he called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every illness and disease. He called his 12 disciples. This internal calling comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to, to basically to yell at and to get their attention and to invite them out of the, the clutter that they're in into a relationship. It is to cry out to them to get their attention and say, I need you, come to me, leave the ones that you're with, and get over here right now. It's an invitation, but it's a calling. It's an internal calling, and it is one of of great privilege because Jesus was like the rabbi, and the rabbi is recruiting students, disciples that he may teach and inform. It's a great honor. Anytime a rabbi calls a student, it's a huge honor. So he calls them... And then he calls them to himself that I may take you under my wings and that I may start pouring myself into you and molding you and shaping you into the people that I need you to be. At that time, they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what what the capacity of that was, but they knew that, that they were being invited into this relationship and that it would be insulting to say no. So they, they all agreed and... It's, it's just, I, I don't know if I can even express it, how honoring it is, how, what an honor it is to be called into something like this. And as a pastor who's been called to this, it is, it's just an amazing honor. Even though we know it's not going to be fun all the time, it's going to be stressful, I'm going to be pulling hair out of my head, I'll be gray by the time I'm 30, you know? But, but we know that, but yet it's still it's such an honor to be called and entrusted with a, a ministry that God has given us to do to, to help wounded people to find health and healing and to, to find the lost and bring them to a place of salvation. It's, it's a great honor. And so he called all 12 of his disciples into this relationship. All 12 of them were called. So we have to look a little bit at these disciples and just look at some of the, the potpourri of, of, of people that he's called and put together. It says that these are the names of the twelve. First was Simon, who is called Peter. We remember Simon Peter. He was the one who got out of the boat, tried to walk on water with Jesus. But when he started focusing on the, on the storm more than Jesus, he began to sink. And Jesus pulled him out of the water and said, you have little faith. Peter, the one who denied him three times and then was reestablished after the resurrection. That's the Peter. Um, He said, I will build my church upon your testimony of who I am. Peter, you know, this is a fisherman with with some gusto, right? Uh, His brother, Andrew, which was, you know, a little brother following in his big brother's footsteps. Uh, A little bit different, but still cool. Uh, James of Zebedee, his brother, John. John was the beloved disciple. John was the one that was so close to Jesus that he just knew his own heartbeat. Uh, the imagery I, I came across once was uh, at the Last Supper. You know how they would have like knee-high tables and they would lounge on their elbows and that John and Jesus were propped up to where their heads were close together so that they could whisper to each other and nobody else could hear what they were saying. They were that intimate at the table. And, and John would never really refer to himself as the beloved disciple until after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. But 
but he just knew that they had a, a very strong bond in their relationship. Then it goes on to say, Philip and Bartholomew, um, uh, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. This is important. I'm not going to have time to talk about all of them, but, but Matthew, the tax collector, uh, he was looked at as being by most Jews as a sinner, a, a political publican, a, a, a political uh, plant that is not to be trusted, never to be liked. Uh, but all of the Jews looked down on tax collectors. They hated them, despised them because of their responsibility to Rome to, to collect the taxes. Um, but Matthew was the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was a very trustworthy and, and solid believer in, in the body. And uh, just an amazing guy. But, but you can see the background and how maybe it would influence their relationships. Uh, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Here's another one. A zealot is a person who is very militaristic. He, he was so anti-Rome that he was ready with a sword at all times. All of the zealots were ready to go to battle to conquer the Romans. You just say, go, and he'll do it right there. He'll kill as many as he has to, but he is so anti-Rome and so pro-Jew that he would do whatever it takes, even if it meant dying or going to prison. What a great guy to have in your mix, right? I mean, who, who doesn't want to have a friend like that? You know, like if you were to get in a scuffle with somebody. Like your Walmart, somebody cuts you off and takes your parking spot. Get him, buddy. You know, that's what you need. And then Judas Iscariot. And look what it says here about Judas. Who betrayed him? Now, yes, this was written after the fact. And so this was written into the text after the fact that, yes, we all know now that Judas was the one who betrayed him. But I want you to look at a couple other interesting passages. Look at John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, not John chapter 6. What passage was it? I just lost it. Maybe it was Matthew 6. No, Oh, my goodness. I can't remember which passage it was. Um, it's in John chapter 7. Sorry. Lord had to correct me on that one. He does that a lot lately, by the way. Um, but John chapter 7. Nope, sorry. It's John 6. <laughs> so John 6 in verse 60, all right? John 6, verse 60. Check this out. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives, gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Some of you do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. From the beginning, Jesus knew Judas will betray me. He will not believe. He will not believe. He will betray me. And yet he still called him to be a disciple and to be in this intimate relationship with him. Isn't that a little bit odd? So here's the way this is all speaking to me at this, at this juncture of the story. Jesus has called together 12 people 
who he is going to love on and he's going to build up and he's going to pour himself into. He's going to invest the kingdom into them. And at the end of this journey, he's going to send them out in his own name to evangelize the entire known world at that time. This does not come without some complications, which we're going to get into in John chapter 15, the passage of Therese Redforth. Or did you read 17? Well, in 15, we're going to get up to 17 in a minute. But check out what he says in verse 15. Now, this is also, you have to understand, is in regards to that same group of disciples. In, verse, in chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. You could even say, I have called you out of this world. And that is why the world hates you. Because Jesus himself called you out of the world to be different, to be set apart for a task, for a ministry, for a calling, for, for a, a commission. He's basically, he's kind of shown you a little bit of almost like a favoritism, even though Jesus doesn't have the ability to show favorites. He loves everybody equally. But to give you a different responsibility than those who live in the world, that's an honor. And one that we need to see as such. He says this, remember the words I have spoken to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. So here's the key phrase. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know God. If they knew God, they would love God. You can't know God and not love him at the same time because he is love. And his love will get all over you. You just can't avoid it. So if you're going to know God, you better be prepared. He's going to love on you. He's going to kiss you on cheek occasionally. He's going to wrap his arms around you, give you a big old bear hug. God's going to be there with you. He's going to love on you. So if you don't like that, you might want to think twice, but God is going to love you. And if you, if you, lo- if you know him, you're going to love him also. But these people did not know him. And that's why they hate Jesus. Everyone in this world, here's the, here's the, uh, the implicit fault, thought, is that if there's anyone in this world who does not love Jesus, it's because they don't know God. If there's anyone here who hates Christians in this world, if you hate any Christians for whatever reason, you don't know God. Because if hate is in you, you do not have the love of the Father. It is impossible to say, I love God and I hate my neighbor at the same time. Doesn't work. God is a God of love. He loves everyone equally. He loves them deeply. And uh, he calls us to do the same. Because we are the apprentices of Jesus. So now we go to John 17, and then we get into the nitty-gritty of this passage. And I know it's redundant, but we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to kind of work our way through this. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that they are going to arrest him and the, the eve of his death on the cross and his, his brutal mistreatment at the hands of the Romans. 
the mocking and the abuse and the blasphemy of the Jewish uh, church leaders is all about to unfold. And in this prayer, he prays for his disciples, all of them. I have revealed you, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. God gave them to him, he called them, and then they accepted him. Out of this world they have come. With all of their bugaboos and their, their brokenness from their childhood, you know, too many excessive spankings at the hands of their papas, all of that, they come out of the world with all of that baggage, and they come to Jesus, and he gets to help them sort through all of this stuff, right? He says, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Jesus is the word. By accepting the calling and the invitation into that relationship, they have obeyed the word. That doesn't mean they've obeyed every command. That doesn't mean they've done everything they were told to do. It just means they have obeyed the word. They have accepted the calling into that relationship. He says, now you know that everything you have given me comes from you. We know that, God. Everything is yours. I am a steward of everything you've entrusted to me. Even the people that I call friends, the people I call family, the people I call parents, the people I call children, even the little things I call dogs, they're all gifts of yours. Everything I have in this world is a gift of yours. I don't deserve anything because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of eternal life is ours through Jesus Christ. It is a gift. And so everything we have in this world other than death is a gift of grace. And so he says, everything that I have, you have given me, including these 12 disciples, not 11, but all 12 disciples are a gift that you have given me. He says in verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew that with certainty that I came from you, and and, and they believed that you sent me. Now we know that you already said He knew from the beginning that Judas would not believe. He probably tried. He probably really put forth an effort to some degree. He just couldn't fully embrace what Jesus was teaching him. And because of that, there would always be the separation between him and Jesus. And I'll just insert this and probably a little bit of stress between him and the other disciples who do believe. So in verse 9, this is the remedy. This is how he's going to fix the situation with all of the different nuances of their personality types and characteristics. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for those who you have given me, for they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and all that you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, all 12 of them. He says in 11, I hope I can help you make sense of this in a minute. He says in 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Now listen to what he prays for them. Protect them by the power of your name. Why in the world would Jesus need to pray a prayer of protection for his disciples? Now, we would naturally say, well, because there's a devil loose. 
The devil is going to do everything he can to infiltrate those disciples, to discourage them, to wear them out, to frustrate them so that they will all just abandon Jesus. But also the devil has an ulterior motive. He wants to infiltrate one or two of them so that he can have access to Jesus. Because he's already tried to access Jesus in the desert for 40 days and Jesus said, I ain't having none of it. So the devil has to come up with another scheme. How am I going to get to Jesus? Now, let me put in a side note, and I hope I don't lose my place. How many of you love it when your kids fight? Do you, do you enjoy that? Do you, do you really like it? I mean, when it starts out like a little verbal jeering at each other, you're ugly, you know, you dress goofy, you need to brush your teeth, that kind of stuff. Do you do, it starts off with that, but then it becomes, you know what, you're stupid, and, and no girl would ever go out with you. And man, you drive, you know, like, like a fish or something. I don't know. But anyway, and so it escalates until the point where you're like, I'm going to knock your teeth out. And then the lamp gets broken and the coffee table leg breaks. Oh, that never happened to you? Anyway, so my mom would do something at that point that I absolutely hate to this day. She would say, get outside and fight. I said, Mom, I don't want to fight my older brothers in the yard where there's no supervision. You know, I don't want that. I was pretty tough when it was name calling and, you know, jeering at each other. But no, physically, no, I was deficient. I was a scrawny, I was just scrawny as Andrew. I was, when I graduated high school, 6'6", 172 pounds. You know, that was 120 pounds ago, put in perspective. All right. So, yeah, they beat the thunder out of me, and I went through seven years of counseling literally because of it. But mom would say, take it out in the yard and fight. Mom, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. But it was almost like it didn't bother her. But when my kids fight, I like, I have to stop it right there. I want to know who started it, and you're going to get it. You're going to get the wrath of Papa Bear, you know? And usually that was like a spanking with a wet noodle, whatever it was. But no, I could be pretty ugly, it'll tell you. But anyway, the point is, is that that is the worst way for me anyway. That is the way to disrupt my life is to attack my kids or for my kids to attack each other. Hate that. Hate it. Hate it. I don't want my kids fighting. You know, you can fight with other people's kids. Just don't fight with my kids. Don't, and I don't want my kids fighting each other. That's just not right. So when I came across this verse that says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. God took me a little bit deeper in this. Yes, there is a devil who is trying to hurt them. Protect them, Father, against the evil one. But here's the thing that God said, but Judas already had the devil. You can find two different passages. One of them says that Judas, uh, that the devil entered him whenever he started talking to the Pharisees about making an arrangement to betray Jesus. Another passage says that he, uh, the devil entered him at the Last Supper. This is after both events. The devil was already inside of him. Whether it had been in him for hours or days or weeks, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. The fact that Jesus knew from the beginning that his heart wasn't in line with Jesus and that he knew from the beginning that he would betray him illustrates at least that somebody knew that there was something not right with Judas. 
We know that whenever Mary came in and broke the, the alabaster jar and started to pour the oil on Jesus' feet, Judas was the one who took care of the money, who the scriptures say he was a thief, but yet he was still in charge of the money. And, and uh, he said, we shouldn't waste this money. We should give it to the poor. Well, he had no intentions of giving it to the poor. He was just greedy. So what I'm trying to to propose here is that Jesus had a huge task on his hands of making 12 men who were so different economically and mentally and educationally and spiritually and physically, and he had to bring them all together, and he had to bring them together as a a spiritual whole, and he had to love them and, and teach them to love each other and to be in relationship with each other so that he could build a cohesive unit that they could do the ministry collectively and individually in the time of his disappearance. This is a huge role. These guys are different people, and, and we are all human. They're human. You know, when they say Judas is a, is a thief, don't trust him. Yes, we're in a small group together, but we're not going to trust him. He's a thief. We're not going to trust you doubting Thomas because you never put your faith where it needs to be. So why don't you just keep your mouth shut? Peter, you're always talking in the small groups. Why don't you just be quiet and let somebody else talk today? Oh, and you over here, you're just wanting all the attention. John, yeah, we know you're the beloved one. Why don't you butt out too? We're tired of hearing how close you and Jesus are. You know, this is what small group really is. And these are the dynamics that come to play in a small group. And then you're stuck trying to, all right, how do I teach them to love each other? How do I teach them to be nice to each other and to quit fighting? The two disciples come to Jesus and they say, they're talking and they're like, okay, which one of us is going to sit at the left hand of Jesus and which one's going to sit at the right hand when he gets to paradise? Oh, I'm going to get this seat. You're going to get this one. All right, let's tell Jesus that he needs to do this. And then all the disciples are like, we're going to knock you out. You know, don't be talking like this. But this is what small group dynamics were. And this is what Jesus had to deal with. And so here he is in the garden saying, Lord, I have given them the words and they've listened to it. But I pray that you will protect them. Protect them against the evil one, yes. But Lord, protect them against each other. For the sake of our witness to this dying world, you must protect them. Don't let them hate each other. Don't let them fight with each other. Help them to love each other. Teach them how to love. Change their hearts. Squeeze them into submission. But do something. Protect them, Lord. So that they may be one as you and I are one. He had to pray about this. He prayed about this all the time. He said in verse 9, I pray for them. This doesn't mean I prayed for them one time. I pray for them ongoing. It never stops. I'm constantly praying that they will get along with each other, that they will love each other, that they will support each other, and that they will work together as a team. In verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by that name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one who was doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. For the fulfilling of scripture, there's two passages in the Old Testament. I forget which ones they are off the top of my head. I had them written down on my desk. But anyway, there's two scriptures, Old Testament, that refer to Jesus being betrayed by one that was very close to him, raising his heel against his master. 
This was prophesied that one of the disciples would betray him. Jesus knew this, and he picked him anyway in order to fulfill scriptures, but also just to show that even when your heart is so far from God that you could care nothing about him, he's still going to give you a chance. He's still going to invite you into the relationship because he's given you the free will to choose. Do you want him or not? Regardless of how much you hate God or hate the church or hate Christian people, as much as you are selfish and really don't want to help anybody in this world, he still gives you an opportunity to help. He still gives you a chance to be in relationship with him. That just blows my mind. Why would anybody do that? That would be like us saying, okay, we need new church members. Let's go to the most vile bar or strip joint in this area, and let's recruit people. We'll start with a bouncer because we need security here. You know, we'll get the ones that sing when they're drunk. We'll bring them in because we need more in the choir. You know, let's get, the, let's get them here. And we know that they hate church. They hate Christians. But let's get them here anyway. Let's pay them to be here, Right? And we should simply because the gospel is for everybody. The gospel is for everyone. He says to the Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. It's amazing stuff. One of the hard things as a pastor, and there's a lot of hard things about being a pastor, not the fact that we only work one day a week, but that um, it, it's, it's hard to try to do ministry by your own strength. And many of us do just that. We think, well, I can fix this. I don't need to pray about it. I can fix it. Or I have these particular issues. Well, I know how to deal with it. I'll fix it. And what happens from time to time is, is that we make a lot of mistakes along the road. And for some reason, when people make mistakes, it irritates other people. And then when when people can label you, well, then they have a reason to hate you because you match a particular label. And so there's a lot of... uh, There's a lot of hypocrisy in the church, but there's also a lot of uh, judgmental behavior in the church. And understand when I say judgmental, I don't mean it like most people do, because in the the Bible it says we are to judge one another. That's, That's a responsibility. We judge each other. But we don't do it by passing a sentence on them and a discipline. Discipline and sentencing is up to God. We judge, which means we are fruit inspectors. 
In other words, we, we, we are in relationship with, the, uh, with each other. And, and, I, and I look at Wayne, I say, Wayne, I don't know if you should use this language. And he says, you're right, I shouldn't, I, I repent of that. And, and Darren, you should, be, uh, you, know, you, should, you should work a little bit harder at doing this. And I'm like, you're right, we should, I should be doing that. And so we're, we're in, inspecting each other's fruit and we're judging our acts as believers and we're holding each other accountable. That's the loving way of doing ministry. But what happens a lot of time is we become judgmental and then we pass the sentence and we say, oh, well, because you won't come to church but once a month, I don't want anything to do with you. Or because you called me a name at the last meeting we were at to, I cut you off. I don't want anything to do with you. That's not what we're looking for here. It's hard that we are different people from different backgrounds with different perspectives on life and we come together and somehow the power of the Holy Spirit has to bring us together in love so that we can love each other with our words and our actions and our behaviors, that we support each other with our prayers and that we invest in each other because we're trying to build disciples for the kingdom. And so I've noticed that there's a difference in this world between persecution. Persecution comes from the devil. That's when the devil gets inside of someone and he says, I'm going to kill you. Uh, The devil got inside of Judas and persecution came to Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. It served God's purpose, but yet it was still persecution. Persecution is not when you're in a small group with somebody and and somebody says, Darren, I think you're a little bit too ADHD. Maybe you need to calm down just a little bit and quit getting so wound up. Or maybe you need to quit talking so much. Maybe you need to quit telling others what to do. Maybe you need to quit trying to control everybody. That's love. That's not, that is not persecution. That is just a loving rebuke. That is accountability and stewardship of each other. But yet we, we have all these weird dynamics going on and these weird thoughts in our head. We think like the, the world way too much. And so when we get in meetings and small groups and Sunday school classes and, and just in fellowship with one another, we, we get bent out of shape so easy. We forget that we're family. We forget that we're loving uh, children of God. And so here's the whole premise. Understand that we are all different. That we're all different. We all come from backgrounds that are just ridiculous in comparison to each other. But yet God still called us together. And it is an honor that he called us together to be a church family. It is such an honor and a privilege. So he brings us together and he says, now, let me teach you how to love each other. We can't teach ourselves by ourselves how to love each other. We, ha- we, we just can't. We, we have to understand how bad Jesus loves us, that he would die for us. And once we start with that and get a grasp on that, how much value Jesus put in us, he saw in us, that he would, he would die for us. Once we understand that, then maybe we can love ourselves. And once we love ourselves, then we can start loving other people because he loved everybody equally. Jesus died for you just like he died for me. He loved you just the same as he did me. God made arrangements for your sin just like he made arrangements for my sin through his son because of the value he placed on us. Every one of us has value in God's eyes. Every one of us is loved by Jesus. That's why he died for us. So why is it so hard for us to love each other? Why is it so hard? But yet there's always a Judas and it doesn't matter. Even if we knew that there was somebody here who was gonna betray us, it doesn't matter. We love them anyway. Even if there was somebody who doubted everything that we're teaching, everything we believe, it doesn't matter. We love them anyway. Even if there's people that don't do their fair share around here, 
We love him anyway. And then when that happens, it is really cool. Ministry is amazing. And then the pastor can sit back and say, God, you are good, man. You are good. But what usually happens is I'm sitting at the desk saying, Lord, you are so bad. You are so bad that you would give me this mess. And then God says, well, you're the ringleader. You're the head mess, right? We're all wounded. We're all broken, but we're all loved by God. And that's why I love Easter because it's like um, a recalibration of our spiritual lives and our spiritual relationships. So I look forward to an amazing month of Easter just celebrating what Christ has done for us and forgetting all the stuff behind, focusing on ahead, and and just enjoying this church family that God has called us together because we don't deserve any of you. I don't deserve any of you. You don't deserve me. It's all by grace. So we might as well just enjoy it and thank God for it and get over ourselves, right? No. But God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Father, you are truly amazing, and we pray that you'll continue this work of healing relationships, of healing our individual brokenness and our pain. I pray that you will bring peace to all of us, Lord, in the midst of our chaos. I pray that you'll breathe your spirit into us, which gives us peace and and confirms the love in us. And I pray, Father, that you will not relent, that you'll not quit, but you'll continue to pour yourself into us and through us for the sake of this dying world, because the church is the only last hope they have. In Jesus we pray. Amen.